Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, chapter 3. Timothy chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 14 to 16. This is the word of God, contains no errors in the original language in which it was given, languages I should say, and it remains to us in faithful translations the authoritative word of God himself. Specifically, God the Son, who is the Word incarnate. So, you and I need to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying to us here. So let us do that. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, reading through the end of the chapter. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But, in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how to how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, vindicated by the Spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we need your assistance, your help at all times, but particularly now. Uh, a time that can be very uh, dangerous if either preacher or hearers are cavalier or um, careless. Lord, much damage has been done from the pulpits uh, of your church over the centuries. Um, Many souls have um, incurred greater condemnation by sitting under uh, preaching, uh, who have not heeded the preached word. Lord, would you please prevent the above, the uh, things I've just mentioned from happening today. We pray that uh, all of the hearers would carefully listen to you speak to them through me. And Lord, would you please give me the grace to say only that which is in accordance with what you are saying in this portion of your word. Glorify yourself, Lord Jesus, um, as you use this means of saving and sanctifying grace amongst your people. We ask it in your name. Amen. Kids, um, y'all are blessed to have the parents that you have and to be born in the churches, or the families, rather, in which you've been born into. You are very blessed children. You are covenant children. And you are living in homes in which your parents love you. And 
one of the ways that your parents show they love you, and you may not readily see this, but is they care about the way you act. There are lots of children in our world today, in our country today, and in this uh, East Texas today, whose parents let them do whatever they want. And you might think that sounds like a good thing, but I promise you it is not. It is not. It's a curse, actually, because parents, by letting their kids do whatever they want, are demonstrating that they don't love their children, really, at least not much. Parents who love their children care about the way you act and the things that you um, do and don't do and say and don't say. They care about your conduct. That's a fancy word for the way you act, the way you behave. They want you to act a certain way. And that's for your sake. But the truth is, it's also, in some, in some sense, for the sake of your parents, too. Uh, because your parents, it, uh, it makes their life easier when you behave, for one thing. But it also reflects on the family name. It reflects on your parents, the way you act. And if you misbehave, people around you tend to think, uh, around your parents tend to, will tend to think your parents don't, aren't very good parents. Because that's what I think when I see little children who act crazy and are talking back to their parents and screaming they want this and they want that. I don't think very well of their parents. I think their parents need a good spanking. But that's another story. At any rate, um, your parents care about the way you act. It's important the way you act. And you know what? God is our Father in heaven. And it's important to Him the way we act in His household, which is the church, the household of faith. It's really important to God. In fact, it's way more important to God probably than your, your conduct is to your parents. God is way more concerned about our conduct as his, as his children, as his spiritual children, in his house and among his people than uh, I am for my, my kids, uh, my girls, or that uh, other parents out here, your parents are for you. And this text that we are looking at today, uh, at least uh, the first point of the text, is all about... Uh, God's concern and why uh, demonstrating that God is concerned about the way things are done in his church by his people. So we're going to talk about that. The first point in particular, uh, we'll focus on that, which I'll get to in a moment. But uh, first, a little bit of uh, background here. In chapter 2, so we're near the end of chapter 3. We're at the end of chapter 3, really. 16 verses in chapter 3, and we're we're looking at the last 3 today. But back in chapter 2... And also in chapter 3, up to this point, so chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, uh, Jesus, through the pen or quill or whatever it was of the Apostle Paul, has been writing about what constitutes proper behavior, proper conduct, proper ways of acting by God's people in his church. And it's actually Jesus' church. And he's been talking about behavior by Christians in the church. In chapter 2, we looked at a few weeks back, he addressed the issues of, first of all, how the church's corporate worship of him should and shouldn't be conducted. 
And also in chapter 2, he addressed, uh, of, he, he addressed the issue of who should and shouldn't teach and exercise authority in his church when it is gathered together as the church. And we, were, we saw there that God wants only uh, men to, uh, uh, to fill the offices in the church of elder and uh, deacon. And that's all about behavior in the church and in worship. Well then, in chapter 3, up to uh, verse 13 of the this chapter that we're in today, chapter 3, the Lord, through again through Paul, has set forth in this chapter the qualifications that uh, God's people must use to identify uh, who should serve in the two offices that I just mentioned in the church. And God, Christ, really, Lord Jesus, through our sifting of men and our evaluating of men for these offices, he decides who should be the uh, leaders in his church. But he uses you, looking at qualifications in the various men in the church who might eventually be qualified to serve in those offices, you need to have the qualifications, and they're here. They're found here in chapter 13. Now, the reason that I'm... Uh, reminding you of this prior material that's prior to our our portion of our, that we're looking at today. The reason I'm reminding you of this is because Paul, in the verses that we are looking at today, he is now setting forth the basis, the grounds for these preceding instructions regarding how the church should worship, uh, who should conduct that worship or lead that worship, and how those who uh, are leaders in the church should be evaluated and chosen by God's people. Here, in this chapter, this uh, uh, the, at least the first point that we're looking at, uh, in verses 14 and 15, we find the basis for what's preceded this, at least as far as ch- uh, chapters 2 and 3 up to this point are concerned. That leads me to the two points for today's message. First, we're going to look at the importance uh, of proper conduct or behavior in the New Testament church. Uh, So we'll be looking at the basis, uh, which points to the importance of that conduct uh, to the Lord Jesus as the head of the church. And then in the second portion of this message, we're going to look at an example of an early confession of the New Testament church. So first, the importance of proper conduct in the New Testament church, and then an example of an early confession of the New Testament church, which we need to confess today because it's been incorporated into Scripture. I'll get to that. But first, the importance of proper conduct in the church. It is important, as I indicated as I was talking to you children here a few moments ago, it's really important to God the way we act when we're together as his people, either in worship or in body life, for lack of a better word, uh, when we get together as Christians uh, in, in, our, in, our, uh, in our association with the, the community of faith. God is very concerned. Jesus, the head of the church, is very concerned about how we act. And this is evident from two things that we find in verses 14 and 15 of the text we're looking at today. First of all, it's evident from the haste with which Paul, uh, Jesus' apostle, sent instructions to Timothy, who was the pastor in Ephesus at this time, uh, uh, amongst the Ephesians Christians, the haste with which Paul sent these instructions about 
how the church's worship of God is, is and isn't to be conducted, and about the kinds of men who are and who are not allowed to be church officers, as far as Jesus is concerned. Paul is very hasty about getting this information to, through, through Timothy to the Ephesian Christians. Now, we read in verse 14, uh, through uh, the first part of verse 15, I am writing, Paul speaking, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, and then he goes on, and I'll read that in a moment, but he speaks of a, of a delay. He anticipates the possibility of a, a delay in his coming to Ephesus. He wants to come to Ephesus to be with Timothy and to be with the congregation there, or perhaps multiple congregations. And he wants to come, but he anticipates the possibility of being delayed in this coming. And so what does he do? Well, he writes. He doesn't want their, and he writes this, this letter, which is, uh, uh, what we call 1st Timothy. And he writes this because, among other, for among other things, and a big portion of the letter has to do with church behavior, as I've already indicated. And he writes this letter in case there is any delay, because he doesn't want there to be delay in them getting this information. He wants to make known to the Christians, and particularly the leadership in the form of Timothy there in Ephesus, what the Lord Jesus' will is regarding the church's worship and its governance. And he doesn't want there to be a delay in that uh, critical information, really very important information, arriving uh, so that Timothy and also the, the congregation there and other leaders that might be present will know this is what the Lord Jesus requires of us. So, Paul writes this letter to Timothy, the Ephesian pastor, uh, with, the, uh, with the instructions that I've already mentioned. So that's one of the ways we know this is important stuff. Behavior, conduct on the part of you and me, uh, children and adults alike, in, in God's house, and I'm not talking about the building, I'm talking about the, uh, as was pointed out uh, this morning in, the, uh, in Sunday school, it's the people that are the church, not the building. Uh, God wants us, Jesus wants us to act in certain ways, and it's important to him. Another way we know that it's important to him, not only because his servant Paul made haste in getting this information to them, but also it's evident from the very nature of the church itself. So let me read again 14, and then I'll read 15 all the way through to the end of it. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to act, excuse me, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. He said a lot there in those few words about the church, which is indicative of why it's important the way we conduct ourselves. So he says, first of all, the church the gathered uh, assembly of God's people is none other than the house, the house or the household. It can be translated both ways. House uh, being the location, speaking more of a location, household, the people in that location. The church is none other than the household of God Himself, God the Son in particular, but where one person of the uh, of the Godhead is, all three of the persons are. Um, uh, that's a fancy doctrine called the doctrine of perichoresis, by the way. 
I just thought I'd throw that out there. It came to my mind. Um, anyway, the church is the household of God. It is the realization, the New Testament church is the realization of what was merely foreshadowed by the old covenant tabernacle and the old covenant temple. Those were shadows of this, what we have here. Those were buildings. Those were made out of material, stone or uh, uh, porpoise skin or whatever. I can't remember all the content, uh, uh, linen, etc., etc. But those things were material dwellings. But they foreshadowed a spiritual dwelling of God, which is the New Testament church, us. Where God dwelt locally in the midst of his people in the Old Testament age, whereas he did that in the Old Testament age in a localized fashion, but in a restricted fashion, he dwells now in a, um, how should I say, an internal way that was not true uh, in the Old Covenant era. In the New Testament era, the church collectively as a people, as a covenant people, is the place where he dwells. He dwells amongst us. He dwells within us. The living God does. And we're told, Paul says, it's not only the household of God, the church is, the New Testament church, but it's the household, he adds a second time, of the living God. The God who lives, the true God who made everything, dwells within us, individually and collectively. We can't get away from him, nor do we want to, I would hope. By the way, if you're an unbeliever, you can't get away from him either. You can't escape him. He's everywhere. And he sees all your sins, and he hasn't forgiven a single one of them, and you're going to be punished for them if you don't flee to Jesus as your only hope of being forgiven. He has provided an offer to all humanity to receive forgiveness of their sins if they will turn to Christ as Savior and Lord. But if you've not done that, you haven't received that forgiveness. You need to turn to him or you will pay for your sins for eternity in hell. It's a real place. It's where God is in his wrath. But for those of us who are believers, it's a beautiful thing to have God with us at all times where he will never leave us or forsake us. Ever. We can, in our midst of our grief, God is there. He lives. The living God is with us and within us and around us. He surrounds us with his love, with his comfort, with his strength, with his peace, with his joy, even when we're grieving or troubled. And because the church is... Because this is the case, because the church is the household of the living God, it is enormously important that the people who comprise this spiritual house conduct themselves in a proper, God-pleasing fashion. You and me. The importance of this proper conduct in the house of God is further underscored in this passage by Paul's description of the of Christ's church as the pillar and support or foundation of the truth. 
We are the pillar and support of the truth. The collective church, the visible church is. Hold on. There we go. What I mean by this is the church is the repository uh, of divine truth in general and of the gospel of Christ in particular. It's where truth is found. Spiritual truth is found in the church. And I would say only in the church because the word comes out of the church. We have the word. The believer, unbelievers can buy Bibles, yes, but they got it from us. Well, they got it from Jesus, what am I saying? But he gave it to us, and we, in turn, give it to the world. But the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the one, uh, the body on earth, the visible church, that is tasked with the responsibility of preserving these truths and promoting and proclaiming these truths. That's what we're trying to do here today. Wish more of those folks out there were in here. But the church is the place that holds up the truth and holds forth the truth to the world. The truth of God. The gospel of Christ. And both because the church is the repository of God's precious truths and the gospel and the dwelling place of the second person of the Godhead himself and the first and the, and the third as well. Because of these things, it is exceedingly important that God's people, that you and I conduct ourselves in a manner that is in accord and I would say strict accord, with the will of our great shepherd and divine head, the Lord Jesus. This is one of the reasons why, and this is one of the things about the Reformed that um, um, I think the Reformed have rightly understood that God is serious about this in ways that some of the other branches of the church perhaps not as much have understood. very important that we don't engage in Nadab and Abihu type behavior and offer up strange fire or choose leaders like Saul rather than David. You know what I mean by that. Not that I'm a David. But you get the point. Jesus wants wants He's in charge. He's the head, and he wants it done his way, and he has a right to have it done his way. So we we learn that, and uh, that's what First Timothy. This letter is largely about is how how tos of the church. That's why it's called one of the pastoral epistles. But secondly, in this passage, not only is the importance of the of proper conduct in the New Testament church. Uh, proclaimed, but also we find an example of an early confession of the New Testament church. This is found in verse 16. And it says there, and by common confession, common confession, I'll explain that in a moment, although it's fairly self-explanatory, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And the mystery of godliness is uh, uh, arguably uh, Jesus. Because the next word is he, he who was revealed in the flesh, obvious reference to Christ, was vindicated by the Spirit 
beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That sixfold statement um, is very clearly uh, tightly constructed. It has a very, very um, obvious organization to it. And Paul says this is commonly confessed. As Paul is writing this letter, this was commonly confessed by Christians in the first few decades following Jesus' ascension. Before, up until the point Paul was writing this. This was a common thing. Commonly known. It was confessed in one of two ways, scholars argue, either in the form of a creed, much like the Apostles' Creed or or the uh, Nicene Creed, or the Westminster Confession, obviously much simpler than the Westminster Confession, but that's still a creed. But So it was either confessed in the form of a creed, which was recited uh, by early Christians widely in their worship services, or it could have also been confessed, because we're doing this, by the way, when we sing, it could have been confessed by them in the form of a hymn that was regularly sung as part of their worship services. But the point is, it was confessed, commonly. It was known, widely known, when Paul is writing this, and he incorporates it into his letter. Majority of commentators see in these six lines, see three contrasting couplets. So the first two lines would be the first couplet, the second two lines would be the second couplet, and the third, the last two lines would be the third couplet. And uh, there are reasons for this, which I won't go into. But essentially, um, the first of the three couplets, so the first two lines, speak of, generally understood, uh, a summary statement, uh, speak of the accomplishment of Christ's redemptive work. The second two couplets speak of the manner in which his atoning work was made known. And the third uh, two couplets, or uh, for the third couplet, rather, uh, the last two lines speak of how Jesus' work of redemption has been acknowledged uh, by others. Um, so let's look at these in our remaining time. Look at these six statements. The first truth that was confessed by the early church and needs to be confessed by us because Jesus put this in here for us to confess uh, uh, and because it's in our scriptures, First Timothy. The first truth confessed about Jesus in this Hymn or creed, I mean, uh, yeah, hymn or creed is that he was revealed in the flesh. It's pretty obvious what that's a reference to. It refers to the Lord's incarnation, his enfleshment, if you will, of the fact that he was revealed, or this could be translated made known, um, and that no may, making known or revelation was by the Father, presumably, through Jesus' conception and his birth, his entrance into the world. And this confession here, he who was revealed in the flesh, um, by its use of that word revealed, also can be translated made known, um, to describe what happened when Jesus was conceived and born and came into the world. This confession by the use of that word implies, doesn't it state it explicitly, but it implies very clearly that Jesus existed before he was revealed. In other words, the term revealed strongly hints at his pre-incarnate existence as God the Son. Jesus didn't, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, become a being when he was conceived. 
He didn't come into existence when he was conceived. That's what they would say, because they believe Jesus is a creature, like we are. Um, It's a damnable doctrine. No, Jesus existed before. He just, as God the Son, but he was revealed to the world through his incarnation. And this assertion that Christ was revealed in the flesh, he says that's how he was revealed, his being revealed in the flesh rules out the possibility that true Christians can believe that Jesus only appeared to possess a physical body during his time upon the earth, but didn't actually have one. That view, by the way, was an early heresy in the church called docetism. It comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem. So Jesus just seemed to be bodily with us, is what the docetists would have said. Uh, but he wasn't actually bodily because they were, they were, um, had, uh, uh, platonic ideas of the, of, uh, or Gnostic ideas that the, the body was uh, evil, that material was evil. And so, well, Jesus couldn't have a material body because material is evil. That's how their, uh, uh, warped logic went. But at any rate, if somebody doesn't believe that Jesus was bodily, on the earth, and it, by the way, still possesses a body, that person is not a Christian. Period. End of statement. End of conversation. So, that was true back in Paul's day. It's true in today. So, do you claim to be a Christian? I imagine all of you here do. Do you believe that Jesus has, right now, it's glorified, but a physical body? That he is like you and me, and that he is a human being, which requires that you have a body as well as the soul. Do you believe that? I hope so. You need to, or you're going to hell. It's that simple. It's a harsh statement, but it's that simple. So if you don't, start believing it, and you won't go there. So, we need to believe this, that Jesus was the God-man, and still is. Secondly, the second truth that was confessed and that we need to believe is that Jesus came, uh, that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. That word can be translated in, the New American translates it in, by is a better translation because of what it's saying, which is why I'm using it. What's the vindicate, in what sense did the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, vindicate, uh, Jesus? Well, this vindication, um, is vindication of Jesus' own claim during his earthly ministry, uh, of being uh, the second person of the Godhead, and the long-promised Messiah and the only Savior of sinners. He claimed that all the time, right? And his the Spirit vindicates that claim of Jesus, that he is God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the only hope of sinners. How, does, how did the Spirit do that? Well, he raised Jesus from the dead. That's how he did it. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised by all three persons of the Godhead, including the Spirit. And here the focus is on the Spirit. He was raised from the dead, bodily. Paul alludes to this divine 
con- activity of confirming through the resurrection the uh, veracity of Jesus' claims to be the to be God, to be the Messiah, to be the uh, only mediator. He does this. Uh, Paul does over in his writings in Romans chapter one, verse uh, four. But I'll read verses one through four. Um, just to give you the context, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was, now he's talking about the son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was, um, this says declared, installed is a better word here, installed or recognized the uh, Installed, I'll use the word installed, who has installed the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. There it is, Christ Jesus our Lord. And he goes on. And Paul's basically making the same case here. God vindicated who Jesus was, that he was, he was the divine Son spoken of by David in Psalm chapter 2. He was that King and is that King. And uh, and he is that Messiah who is again spoken of in Psalm two and elsewhere. And the evidence of it is he is now in heaven bodily, after having walked on the earth for forty days after having been raised. The resurrection was a vindication of all those claims that Jesus made that so many people disbelieved when they were and scoffed at when he was during here during his earthly ministry. And folks, the resurrection still vindicates Jesus' claims today. You go, well, how, how do you know that? How, in what sense? We can't turn back the clock. We don't have a video of Jesus coming out of, the, out of the tomb. Well, the reason is because of the logic, and we won't spend uh, any, any uh, but a few sentences saying it, but the, the logic of what happened, um, the, uh, the apostles, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, and this is the argument that C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell and others have used, uh, and others before them, but if... The, if these men, uh, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, if, if it was just a gag, if it was just a ruse, the, all of those men knew it. Every last one of the disciples knew it. And then, all of those men suffered horribly. Most all of them uh, according to church tradition, died horrific deaths because they would not renounce Christ as the risen Savior of the world. And it's one thing if they actually thought he was the risen Savior, but just had been fooled into thinking so, like other, Christian, uh, other Christians of the day who didn't, hadn't actually known Jesus. But you see, they knew. And yet, every last one of them died, or in the, with the exception of John, he suffered horribly too, uh, church tradition tells us, boiled in oil and so on. Um, they died knowing. And they didn't have to die for a lie, and yet they did. All of them. There isn't any, any evidence whatsoever that one of them recanted. And why? The resurrection. The resurrection. We can't deny it. We can't, we can't deny it. It happened. It's him. It's God, the Messiah, the Savior. It's him. You want to kill me? Kill me. Because they all knew. 
The resurrection still vindicates Jesus today as who he said he was and is. And it's the truth that all, all true Christians must and do believe that Jesus raised, was raised from the dead bodily. If you don't, again, you're lost. You're not a Christian. Doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't matter what your church says. You're not a Christian. And you're under God's wrath. And you need to flee to Christ as your only hope. A risen Christ. Thirdly, third truth that is confessed here in this creed, him, whatever it was, this confession about our Savior is that he was beheld by angels, we are told. All four of the Gospels inform us that angels were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Uh, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 4, uh, 24, and John 20. Um, and uh, this phrase, beheld by angels, that, uh, that, was, that Paul incorporates into his letter that was part of a, a confession that was common in his day, um, that phrase, beheld by angels, is probably referring to their beholding him as he is coming out of the out of the tomb. It is probably first and foremost that the resurrection that uh, this phrase has in mind be held by angels. It might also be alluding um, uh, to the angelic witness to Jesus' ascension uh, from uh, up into heaven that we read of in Acts chapter one. It could possibly be alluding to that. Uh, event as well, but since the last line of this creed or confession in uh, 1 Timothy 3 undoubtedly has the ascension in mind, it's probably better to think of this line be held by angels as referring to uh, solely to the resurrection. Can't prove it, but it's probably best to think of the resurrection here, because later on he's going to obviously refer to the ascension. And wh- why, why this... Um, why this reference to angelic witnesses? Why does he bring angels into the, or why did the creed bring angels into the creed? Um, it's kind of a little, seems a little strange perhaps. Well, the reason is, uh, probably, we're speculating here, but it's probably a, a good speculation, to emphasize the cosmic, universal um, significance of what Jesus accomplished. Uh, through his incarnation and all that he did to save us. For you see, um, it was a cosmic significance. It was, you can't, you can't, you can't fully understand the significance of it is kind of what I think why angels are brought into the conversation here. Angels were involved in this, this whole thing and were stunned by what was going on. Because not only did what Jesus do, through his coming and his incarnation and his cross work, not only did he rescue innumerable inhabitants of the earth from being eternally damned, but heaven itself was transformed by what Jesus did here on earth. You say, what are you talking about? This is what I'm talking about. Paul speaks of this over in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus' resurrection which was a part and parcel uh, 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 with his ascension in the exaltation of Christ. Jesus' exaltation, which began with uh, his resurrection, signaled the commencement of the triune God's reign through the heavenly rule of the victorious enthroned messianic son. Prior to Jesus' crosswork on earth, The triune God ruled as king, 
But not through the messianic son. Not through the enthroned God-man. That only happened in in time and space, if you will, after Jesus rose and ascended. And that's a new thing. And Jesus is now in heaven as the God-man. Enthroned. Ruling on behalf of the the Trinity. In ways that... And that's new. That was new, if you will, to heaven. Heaven was transformed. And, by the way, the transformation of the physical cosmos, the physical universe, into the new heavens and new earth, that will come about as a culmination of Jesus' incarnation and cross work. Which happened because he was revealed in the flesh. And indicated by the Spirit. And the, the bringing into, the angels into discussion seems to point to this overwhelmingly amazing and cosmic, that's the word I keep using, significance of, of what God did when Jesus came. The fourth truth confessed about the Lord Jesus in this creed slash hymn is that he was proclaimed among the nations. The news of this redeeming work that Christ accomplished was spreading throughout the world as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. And it was spreading as a result of, first and foremost, the preaching of the gospel by ministers like himself, but also the evangelism on the done by individual Christians such as all of us. And news was spreading like wildfire. We all know the history. I think, I think most of us do. A little bit about early church history. And they, uh, uh, they could not, the Romans and the Jews could not stomp it out. The more they stomped, the more it spread. It's like, if you ever tried to stop out a, Stop out a, 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 a fire that's died down and you, you, you're like stomping on it and the, the coals light up. Kind of the same idea. And the spread of this gloriously good news, uh, fantastic news among the nations, was happening in Paul's day and it continues today. It's happening in Burkina Faso. It's happening in Italy again. It's happening in Norway again. It's happening in Taiwan, maybe for the first time. Etc., etc. And all sorts of other places. And Jesus is making sure that it continues to spread. And it is your and my God given duty. Yes, it is a duty and a privilege to proclaim this message of salvation to anyone who will listen to us. We need to be looking, folks, for an opportunity to talk to our non-Christian friends or people we're not sure are Christians about the Lord. We can't just wait for them to come up to us and say, would you please tell me about Jesus? That's not going to happen, just so you know. And you can't say, oh, I don't have the gift of evangelism. That's nonsense. 
You don't need a gift to evangelize. You just need some courage, which God promises to give if you'll ask. And you need to ask. And you need to look for opportunities. And you need to take them. Yes, I've failed in this area more times than I care to remember. Think about it. I'm ashamed. But just because we struggle to be evangelists, to be witnesses, doesn't mean we get to say, well, I'll just leave that to the minister, or I'll just leave that to that sweet lady who just bubbles with Jesus whenever she talks. There's one, apparently there's a lady like that over at Believer's Bible Church that Bob Clun talks about sometimes. Actually, I think she's going to be with the Lord. Anyway, um, we can't just you know, write ourselves off there. The fifth truth confessed here in this creed that Paul um, incorporates into his letter about our Savior is that Jesus was being believed on in the world. He was being believed on in the world. This line speaks of the ongoing effect of Jesus' incarnation and atoning work in Paul's own day, which I've already already spoken of. It was was being proclaimed, and, and the response to the proclamation was belief on the part of many. Thousands, tens of thousands, eventually millions. In the early in the early uh, ages of the New Testament church, and the and that's the effect of what Jesus' coming was. People believed, and and that's con, that that's a continuing effect today in the world today. Jesus is still being believed on by people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The kingdom of God is is coming. We pray, Thy kingdom come. It's coming. And nothing is going to stop it from continuing to do so. Praise the Lord. Amen. There you go. Kim Jong-un can't say no to Jesus. You can't, you can't tell any of my people. Think of the little bug I hate and what Jesus is going to do with him one day. If he doesn't, if he doesn't come to Christ, we pray. We, if he, it would be wonderful if God would make him a uh, trophy of His grace. But if not, yeah, we all know what's going to happen. Last and final truth uh, confessed by Jesus about Jesus, rather here, is that He was taken up into glory. This line undoubtedly, as already indicated, refers to Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven. There is no physical chair. There is no physical right hand. We all know this. This is this is points to I've said it umpteen times. It points to the place of greatest prominence, of greatest uh, preeminence and glory and honor. That's what that means. Uh, it's language taken from uh, uh, hospitality language taken from the uh, Paul's day that's used to describe the place of honor. Jesus uh, has ascended up uh, into heaven, um, and the phrase "taken up into glory." speaks of the fact that the then newly enthroned Son of Man was immediately, upon entering into heaven, as it were, was immediately enveloped by the very majesty and radiance uh, and splendor of His Father. Um, And the veil that had been veiling Him, His glory, uh, which was also the Father's glory, that veil was has been utterly taken away. 
and he participates fully. He he um, he enjoys in an unveiled way uh, the the glory of himself and the Father and the Spirit as he possesses his glorified body um, like us. And it is a divine glory and splendor in some very unbelievable way that you too will behold and exceedingly, and I exceedingly rejoice in. And we will behold it. We will, we will see the glory of God and the glory of the Son. Um, the beatific vision, it's called. And we will see that with spiritual eyes, I don't know, with actual eyeballs. I don't know how that's going to work. I guess after the resurrection we'll use our, our, our glorified eyeballs. Um, you ever heard that from a pulpit? Anyway, um, we're going to see him. And we're going to, we're just going to be just, it's going to be way beyond anything that you and I have ever experienced. Just going to be stunning how wonderful it's going to be. And we're going to forget about all this mess. And we're not going to care about this troubled world that we live in now. And the troubles that we have in this life when we see our Savior face to face. But that's only going to happen for those who are in Christ. Trusting in Jesus alone the Jesus, the true Jesus, not a false Jesus, not the Jehovah's Witnesses Jesus, or the, or the Mormon Jesus, or the Muslim Jesus. Those are all false Christs. The true Jesus. Are you trusting in the true Jesus? Who's 100%, is 100% God, is 100% man, is glorified in heaven, and is the only Savior of sinners? And do you have him as your Savior and Lord? If you don't, you need to. Did you cry out to him right now and say, Lord, save me from myself and the hell that I deserve? If you do that in faith, he will save you. But only if you do it in faith, looking to him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, survey of the pivotal moments in your, uh, of your incarnation. And, uh, the pivotal moments in how the world has responded. We thank you that we are among those that have responded in faith, trusting in you, and that's only because you have given us new hearts so that we might. We thank you. Lord, we pray that you would help us as an expression of our love and our gratitude to be people who are concerned, uh, very concerned about uh, conducting ourselves properly, um, in ways that are set forth by you in your word. Um, when it comes to uh, church government, when it comes to our worship, when it comes to our um, callings that we uh, engage in, lifestyle, whatever, Lord, would you help us to always want to live and act and think and speak in ways that you have indicated you wish us to. It's the very least that we can do as a thank offering to you. 
Please help us not to rebel. Um, Help us not to kick against the goads, uh, as is our want, if we're not careful. But help us to love your law, to love you by loving your law. And if there is anybody listening that doesn't know you savingly, would you please show him that he's lost and what and give him a, a desire to trust you, Lord Jesus, alone. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close our hymn, our, our service rather, with our final hymn. How sweet and awesome is this is in the Psalter hymnal again for hymn number four hundred and twenty-five. How sweet and awesome is the place With Christ within the doors While everlasting love displays The choicest of her stores While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. Each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice? And enter while there's room When thousands make a wretched choice And rather starve than come T'was the same love that spread the feast That sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see our church as full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.